Hi, everybody. This is the Series A podcast. I am Drew Aldrich, guest hosting today for Laurel, and I'm an investor with Access Strategic Ventures, a $250 million venture capital fund backed by AXA, one of the world's largest insurers. I'm really excited today to introduce our guest, Chris Gale, co-founder of Clover. Chris, tell us a bit about what Clover is and does and, and where you guys are. Yeah, so Clover's a, a Medicare Advantage health plan uh, that serves about currently 16,000 members uh, in the state of New Jersey. And, and what we're doing is we're using uh, software that we build and data science uh, that comes out of our group uh, to identify opportunities to improve people's health outcomes with care interventions. And, and given that we're a Medicare Advantage plan, we're serving people 65 and older. So we're really focused on finding opportunities to improve the health outcomes uh, related to certain chronic diseases. Uh, the team's about 200 people. We're based in San Francisco. We have an office in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, I've been involved since uh, 2014. When did you guys found Clover? Who are the founding team? So my partner in this business is Vivek Garipali, and he started a health system out in New Jersey and originally had started this health plan as part of that business, kind of with the co-branded with the hospital system. And that was 2012. It started out just in Hudson County, New Jersey, as a health plan that was intended to uh, orient itself around improving uh, patient outcomes, member outcomes for the health plan, with the idea that if you could save uh, hospitalization costs by filling care gaps, um, you could make a big cost savings for the health plan. Um, when, when I joined uh, in 2014, uh, the idea was to take that model and scale it up using technology. Um, so we took, we took the health plan business, created this company Clover around it, uh, with technology at its core, with the idea that um, if you're going to take this approach to uh, identifying care gaps that exist across the population and then providing uh, proactive uh, preventive care uh, or, or social and economic interventions, in order to identify those opportunities across a, a scaling population, you really need data science and, and technology and software workflows uh, that you custom build to be able to be effective at that at scale. Um, so when I joined in, in 2014, that was the idea. Um, and uh, we've been scaling up the, the technology piece of the operation and expanding geographically since mm -hmm. then. Um, so we're at about 200 people at this point. And, and what's your background? My background's uh, software engineering. So I've been a software engineer since uh, 1998. Uh, never worked in healthcare before. Mm -hmm. I've worked in uh, ad tech, and I started at American Express. Uh, worked at a company most recently called Yammer. Uh, we were acquired by Microsoft uh, a few years ago. Uh, so I was the VP of engineering there from the early days up through the acquisition. And how did you meet your co-founder? Um, so I'm actually an advisor to Flatiron Health out here in New York, uh, to their engineering team. Mm -hmm. And that was my uh, introduction to the healthcare world. And Vivex part of the board at Flatiron. He helped them uh, develop that business model that became Flatiron. So I, that makes a huge amount of sense. And before we kind of really dive into some questions about Clover, I think it would be important for our audience to more understand some of the basics of the market. Clover is a Medicare Advantage plan. And can you just give us a quick 
intro of what the what is Medicare Advantage and how does it differ from a private health insurer or a Medicare plan? Yeah. So so Medicare, and just as a refresher on that program, is a federal program for people either 65 and older or with certain qualifying disabilities. So normally what happens is uh, when you become eligible for Medicare, you can sign up for the government's Medicare program, and the government essentially becomes your insurer. Um, so the, the providers you go to see will bill uh, the government, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, for services you've received. Now, normally what happens is they bill 80% to the government, and then you're on the hook for paying 20% out of pocket. Um, that's pretty expensive for people who are at or past retirement age, uh, maybe living on fixed income, uh, and especially as you start to deal with um, diseases and consequences of aging, your healthcare expenses are only going to go up. So that 20% you're on the hook for can be really expensive. So it's created an industry around, uh, first of all, uh, Medicare supplementary insurance or Medigap insurance or MedSup, it's also called, um, where you pay a fixed uh, premium to a, uh, an insurance business to cover that 20% risk that you have. Um, so that protects you from, from big losses or big costs. You, you have a fixed monthly fee that you can, uh, a premium that you can, you can count on. Now, as an alternative to that, in the 90s, there was a program created called Medicare Advantage. So Medicare Advantage allows private companies like us, like Clover, um, to administer your entire Medicare benefits. Um, so I'm, and I'm simplifying a little bit here because it would take sure. hours to really describe all the sure. details of how Medicare Advantage works. But at, at a super high conceptual level, um, you say, instead of going to the government and signing up for traditional Medicare, I want to go to a private company, sign up for their Medicare Advantage plan. And then the government says, okay, well, since that private company is accepting all the risk for you uh, signing up as a member, then the government is going to subsidize a monthly premium for you. So that's how Clover's business model works. We, we sign up members, and then the government pays us a, a capitated, uh, risk-adjusted rate for those people we sign up. So, so effectively, a sicker patient, the government gives you a larger amount of money for than a less sick patient, generally speaking. Yeah. And that this is fundamentally different from pure Medicaid, where the patient gets most but not all their healthcare expenses covered and it's different than commercial traditional commercial insurance because uh, in the traditional commercial insurance world it's more um, there's even higher potential costs or how how does it differ from traditional insurance well one of the biggest differences uh, that's that's relevant to us in our business is that medicare is for primarily for older people as we age we we uh, start to collect chronic diseases uh, things like uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, congestive heart failure, uh, type 2 diabetes. And these are, these are sort of things associated with uh, getting older and, and all of the things you accumulate through your life. Um, managing those chronic diseases uh, gives you an opportunity to, to actually change somebody's health trajectory. So if you have something like uh, congestive heart failure and you don't deal with it, uh, it'll just progress and you'll develop more and more acute episodes related to that disease. Diabetes is the same way, COPD. Um, in a commercial population, there's, there's sort of less opportunity to, to pull that lever to drive a, a significant portion of the costs. In commercial insurance, it's, uh, you're not touching the healthcare system regularly. You're not typically not managing chronic diseases. You're sort of standing back and waiting for 
big catastrophic losses for things where the the, the system doesn't have levers to influence the, the actual odds that you'll have those big claims. Uh, in the Medicare space, that, that's a, a huge, huge opportunity for us. So that's how we've oriented the whole business. So that, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which was going to be, sounds like you're saying this particular population, there's a particular opportunity to drive better health and outcomes and, and thus costs. And I'm assuming there were already Medicare Advantage plans in the areas you're currently working in. So what was the big opportunity that you guys saw uh, that was lacking in the market uh, before you got there? Yeah, the big thing is in in filling gaps in care. Um, So if you think of the way uh, most MA plans, Medicare Advantage plans are oriented, uh, they sort of act like traditional insurance companies, like, like traditional health insurance or like traditional even like car insurance or flood insurance, where they think that their job is to better price risk, better manage uh, the, the overhead that's associated with running their company, but not to actually attack the fundamental insurance risk of the business, uh, which for us is, is these health consequences related to chronic diseases. And part of it's that they haven't had the technology or the tools to be able to operate that way. So if you look at all of the traditional uh, Medicare Advantage plans that we have in this country right now, uh, they're not built by technology people. They're buying technology solutions from what they still call IT vendors. Um, so they're using software stacks that are pretty antiquated, and they're buying different point solutions for different parts of their business that don't integrate well with each other. So even within a single Medicare Advantage plan, it's often the case that no one part of the business knows everything that can be known about one of their members. So there are opportunities to, to understand the health risks of that population and the intervention opportunities and to reason about the ROI uh, of, of providing a particular care intervention at a moment in time is really limited by, by a lack of technology capabilities inside of the business. So it sounds like technology is at the core of what you guys are doing. Is that why you guys are based mostly in San Francisco, yet you operate primarily currently in New Jersey? Yeah, New Jersey is the first market we in- entered, uh, primarily because of my partner's uh, uh, existing relationships in, in New Jersey. It was just a starting point uh, for the business. New Jersey is actually kind of a worst-case scenario for a market for us because <laughs> uh, like, if you look at some of the other markets, there are, um, there are plans that have been successful at, at getting the providers in that market to understand managed care and to to, to really um, be on top of these. So, so there are these HEDIS uh, uh, quality measures that this industry uh, uses to track how well, how well it's doing in managing certain chronic disease states. Mm. Um, and Medicare Advantage plans are measured on this, this star rating system. Um, there are some markets where they've, they've really started to understand and coordinate better than other markets. New Jersey is a market where there's a lot of fragmentation in the provider side, and there's not a lot of care coordination across different uh, provider businesses. And there's a lot of instances of, of providers that are still like not on electronic medical record systems. So when you're talking about data aggregation and stuff, it's just one of the hardest markets to be successful at what we're doing. So it's, I actually feel really fortunate that we started in that market. But you're totally right. The, the access to technology, talent, and data science is, is the main reason we're in the Bay Area. And when, just taking one step back, uh, when you talk providers, you're talking doctors and hospitals. Yeah, Are there right. other types of providers, or th- that's the core, right? That's the core, is uh, uh, doctors and hospitals. But there's also pharmacies and labs. 
Uh, we, we use the term providers to, to refer to anybody who provides a billable healthcare service to our members. And so you, uh, through your tech stack and through your data science, you identify ways of driving better behavior. And then how do you get those identifications to actual action? How do you actually drive through the system to get your clients and patients and the providers to work together and get this coordinated care? You mentioned behavior change. Behavior change is is important when we talk about things like taking a prescription medication that's intended to stall the progression of a disease. That that adherence to that medication is super important to us. Um, we're, we're really focused on those things that can have, um, I'm not going to say short-term, but more immediate uh, effects on people's health outcomes. When, when a lot of the world thinks about uh, preventive care, they think about things like, getting someone to stop smoking when they're 25. I mean, we're dealing with a population of people 65 and older. They, they have the diseases associated with having smoked their whole life. So what we're really, we're really concerned with is not going back in time 40 years and, and, and reversing that or, or making a 40-year bet on getting someone to stop smoking. But we're saying that you know once you're in this disease state, we know that if you take this medication regularly and you have this follow-up test on this schedule and, and you... Um, are, are getting these labs done on this frequency and, and the, the biomarkers are being controlled within a certain range, uh, that that can meaningfully improve your health consequences in a really significant way. Um, that, that's what we're focused on. So w- when, when we think about the business, it's about filling care gaps that exist. So we look across our population and what we can do is say, okay, given that we're the payer, we're the insurance company, we know the care somebody is receiving we can build data models and clinical uh, ontologies that, that allow us to reason about the clinical state that someone's in, and then we can compare the observed care they're receiving to what's known to be the best possible standard of care for that disease. And when there's differences, that's what we call a care gap, and that's where we use the software to drive into people's workflow to get those care gaps filled. So one lever we have is, is the home visits we do. So we have nurse practitioners going into our members' homes uh, to do uh, an annual wellness visit, a, a care assessment. Uh, and as part of that, we can use our data models to say, hey, there's a really high probability this person is uh, going to develop complications of this disease based on what we know about them. So ask them these very targeted questions. Uh, or, you know, we see that this person's missed this test so if you could, I mean, these are nurse practitioners, so a lot of these tests they can actually administer in the home. And we know that having the data from those tests uh, allows us to surface when they're having problems. And if we know this is a high-risk member associated with one of the problems that that, test, that particular test surfaces, then we know it's valuable to get that test done. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we think about gaps in care. It's a little bit different from, like, diet and exercise and mm-hmm. stop smoking. It's much more about... You have a disease, and we want to really uh, stay on top of it and be really proactive in making sure that, that you have the best possible health outcome from the starting point. Are there any illustrative examples, or do you have any great kind of patient stories First off, actually, do you call your clients clients or patients? I don't know. In the members. members. We're a health plan. Got so that's the typical term that's used in the industry. So for your members, are there any great stories that you kind of dis- can display how 
you'd actually derive these these superior outcomes? Yeah. So one of the things I mentioned earlier was uh, medication adherence. Uh, this is one of those things where there's no silver bullet that just fixes medication adherence. Everyone who's not taking a particular medication regularly is probably not doing so for just a variety of different reasons. Everybody's going to be a little bit unique. Um, our data allows us to identify people who are at high risk of falling off medication adherence. And because we're the insurance company, we know once they have. Uh, so because somebody has to, uh, when somebody gets a, a prescription filled, we get the bill. We know what medications they should be on. So we know when they're actually getting them refilled. If they're not getting them refilled on time, it's either because the existing pills lasted longer than they should have, which means they didn't take them regularly enough, or they decided just to stop and they're not going to bother getting this refill. Um, so those are that identifies an opportunity we have to go address that adherence problem. Um, once we get uh, to, to the member and we start to look into that problem, we can see things like sometimes the medication schedule they're on is just super confusing. Um, so we have uh, our nurse practitioners and our clinical pharmacists can uh, coordinate with their providers to actually change their medication schedule to get that simplified to get them more adherent because you know, everybody in the system wants that person to be taking that medication. It saves us money. Their doctors want them to have the best possible health outcome. So it's, it's not controversial to want to simplify that and uh, when that person is known to have a problem. Sometimes it's economic. Sometimes that person can't uh, afford the copay on medications. And over time, we want to use our plan design to, to lower the copays as much as we can so that this is less of a barrier for people. Um, but right now, one of the things we can do is with a team of social workers, we can actually uh, talk to an individual member and find out if they qualify for government assistance programs. So, for example, if somebody uh, can have the, the state of New Jersey has a, a prescription as assistance program uh, for people who qualify below a certain uh, income threshold. So if we know that one of our members qualifies for that, we know it's in our best interest to spend the time with them submitting the application and kind of negotiating some of the government red tape so that in the future they don't have to worry about that, that financial barrier to, to receiving the medication they need to be receiving. And looking a little bit back towards the, the origins and the beginning of Clover, what has been or what proved to be one of the largest challenges or difficult challenges you guys had to overcome? Was it a customer problem? Was it a regulatory? Was it employee? Was it difficult to, to attract key talent? Or uh, was it managing a kind of bi-coastal, uh, bi-coastal company? <laughs> it's all of those things plus fundraising. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. And fundraising, of course. Yeah. No, it's been interesting. The, the, I think in the tech startup world, there's a lot of people who have very, um, very establishmental models for uh, it's this kind of app company, and especially in digital health. Like everybody wants uh, – oh, so it's an app on my phone that causes me to have better health outcomes or something, and n nothing we're doing looks like that. It's, it's not member-facing. It's uh, facing our staff and, and providers in our network. Um, so, you know, pitching that to, to investors was very difficult in the early days. We'd say, okay, we're an insurance company, and this is how we operate and how it's different. And they'd say, okay, that all sounds good. Show me your app. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, so, so explaining that to investors was difficult. Explaining it to the first, I'd say, five engineers that we hired was really difficult because cool. they couldn't really reason about what is it I'm going to work on. But once we, once we started to build momentum on the technology side, we could say, this is what we work on. And we could show them and we could talk about a tech stack that was real and not speculative. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it gets easier over time once you establish a thing that people can actually look at and, and it's not an abstract concept. Um, but, but yeah, in the early days, just, just being, uh, a tech startup that's, that's so different from, from the mental model that everyone else, especially in San Francisco has for what a tech startup is, was the big challenge. Was there actually a difference between raising West coast versus East coast in the investor questions or what their core knowledge is of insurance? I think it, the big difference was uh, 2014 versus, uh, you know, 2015, we raised uh, a couple rounds. Um, you're just seeing the, the, the investor community come around and understand business models in the insurance space. Whereas I'd say two years ago, people were, I mean, it was just such a new thing that, and, and it's, it's funny. I mean, two years doesn't sound like a, a, a ton of time, but you've just seen um, like Oscar and, even, even Metro Mile, you're just seeing people like in that space. So, so the investors are educating themselves and starting to understand it a little bit better and asking better questions and, and just really building a, a better understanding of, of the business. Thinking about what is the important kind of what your highest priorities are for the next, call it six to 18 months, I could imagine geographic distribution and going to new areas, moving beyond New Jersey. But I could also imagine it's developing a different side of the tech stack, uh, looking at wearables or things like that. Or it could be something I'm, I'm not thinking about. What, what are the key priorities you guys see over the next six to 18 months? Yeah, the big, the big thing we did over the, the uh, previous 18 months uh, we're really about building data capabilities. Um, so if you think of the, the, the different data sources we've had to uh, aggregate and integrate, and normalize, and, and be able to uh, build business intelligence tools on top of, um, that was a big challenge, especially in healthcare where uh, every upstream data source we have lies to us in one way or another. Uh, there, there's What do you mean by that? The, the data quality issues across healthcare are, are pretty astonishing. There's, um, so, so uh, yeah, we, we, get, we get information about the same events through a variety of sources. We'll get them uh, from claims that come into our system. We get the, some of them come in from uh, uh, charts that are in the medical record for a particular uh, member or a patient from the provider's perspective. Sometimes there's conflicts in that. Sometimes even just in the claims, we'll get repeated uh, duplicate claims that are conflicting in their information. When you even the, some of this data gets reported back to us by the government by CMS, sometimes there are uh, issues in that data that need to be reconciled and reconciled across all of these sources. So it's just been a, a, a huge undertaking to get all this data normalized. And then there's issues of, of of taxonomies and ontologies and terminology where you have different people referring to uh, similar procedures or medications by different terms, and just sorting out and reconciling all of that has has been a ton of work. But now we're at the point where we're starting to build uh, data insights on top of that in, a, in an automated and ongoing way. So we've been doing it sort of ad hoc up to this point where every time we integrated a new data source, it unlocked a new set of conclusions that we could uh, ask or, or conclusions we could come to about the business. Um, but now what we're starting to do is build predictive models on top of all this data that we're operationalizing in the software. 
So for example, um, a big part of what we do every day is to uh, reach out to members who we believe uh, have care gaps that we need to address. And sometimes it's reaching out to their providers. Sometimes it's providing tools to their providers that say, hey, for this population that you are the primary care doctor of record uh, for, these are care gaps that exist and we're willing to pay you to fill these uh, because we know it improves the health of our members. So across all of these things, we want to be really intelligent about the things we surface and much more intelligent than the status quo in this industry, which is very rules-based, very um, straightforward and deterministic. Uh, we, we're building models that are predictive and, and are surfacing insights and, and prioritizing things uh, in a way that can be optimized over time. So we're getting the most leverage out of every encounter we have with either our members or with providers and just, just continuing to streamline the uh, operations of the business by, by further taking these uh, pieces of workflow for our business and, and moving them into our own technology stack rather than uh, relying on outside uh, software vendors for some, some of the stuff that's still on the margins of what we do. I think understanding the regulatory environment is key to understanding Clover a little bit. How are you guys, how do you guys manage that? That, that because you are paid by the government, there is an outsized influence they could have on your future returns, on how you guys expand. How do you guys handle and think about and deal with that yeah. key issue? No, absolutely. It's it's. Uh, I think it's super important to. Uh, we're we're being very proactive about reaching out to uh, CMS uh, and and to people in in the government who are are responsible for for regulating Medicare Advantage to say, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're all about. We want to be as transparent as possible, um, because if you look at the the trend. Uh, first of all, you're absolutely right. Like this, this is our number one stakeholder financially. Uh, so it's really important for us to maintain a good relationship with them. But also, we're trying to accomplish things that are good for them. As we save money on preventable healthcare expenses, we're also saving the government money. This is the government's paying for all these things. They're paying us a capitated rate, and then we're paying out uh, for services that our members receive. So if we're paying for fewer, fewer of those services, we get to lower our costs for the next plan year, and we give money back to taxpayers every time we do that. So every time we lower our rates, the taxpayers are saving money. So uh, our, our interests and the government's interests are really well aligned here. Uh, we're trying to do all the things that the government is trying to get all Medicare Advantage plans to do. There's actually a lot of... Um, and there's a lot of changes happening in, in Medicare right now, Medicare Advantage specifically, around trying to push for uh, these improvements to these quality measures that I talked about earlier and for pushing for more managed care and more value-based care. And we're orienting our whole business around that. So our, our approach to, to regulators is, is to say, look, we're here to do all those things you're trying to get these big behemoths to figure out how to do. And we're starting with that as the core of our business. So... Uh, you know, when we go to them, we're, we're, we're trying to push back to them and say, you know, here's another opportunity for a new kind of uh, approach for uh, integrating data and, and for doing continuous monitoring against these, uh, these, these quality measures that you care about. So um, you're, you're totally right. We see it as a huge advantage for us. Like if, if anyone's going to be able to deal with a rapidly changing regulatory environment, is it United Healthcare with 116,000 employees? Or is it a tech startup that owns its technology stack and is continuously pushing software updates every day? And we think we've got a huge advantage there.
do you guys have to spend heavily on lobbyists or does your innate positive message with an, and um, positive outcomes speak for themselves? Well, we, uh, so we have to have a relationship with the, the government agency that regulates Medicare Advantage. That's just one of the things that happens when you're a Medicare Advantage plan. You talk to CMS constantly. Um, so we're, uh, we're really investing a lot in making sure that uh, we're compliant so we can have good conversations with them about these are the compliance practices we're following. This is our approach. If you have any questions or, or you want to ask us about how we're approaching a particular thing, uh, we want to be available to them. We, we don't see it as lobbying. We see it as like building trust with the organization uh, that regulates us and making sure that we understand uh, the regulations that they're holding us accountable to and making sure we have the right interpretation of those. And, and you know, we really think that what we're doing is what the government wants all health plans to be doing. So we're not trying to like influence them. We're not trying to change what they do. We're just really trying to understand that at all times, there's a high level of trust between the two of us and, and that we can ask them, you know, hey, is this what you intend with this regulation or is it this? And we think that's all going to work in our favor. So it's just a matter of, of knowing as much as we possibly can and being as transparent as possible with the government. Today you're in primarily new, a large section of northern New Jersey. You built a tech stack out of a developer team in San Francisco. When you think about scale, one, how quickly do you hit all of New Jersey? Is that your next priority? Two, when is it that you move beyond New Jersey? And three, when you do start scaling geographically, in your mind, how much, how much has your existing tech, tech infrastructure, uh, how much does that allow you to scale without kind of doubling the size of the team or tripling the size of the team? How, how much leverage do you really get by basing your company as a primarily a tech company? We're right now in the process of figuring out what geographic expansion will look like for, for next year when we start selling the 2017 plan, which will be October to December of, of, of this year. Um, we're, not, we're not totally finalized. We have an idea of where we think we want to go um, and how much expansion there will be either within or outside of New Jersey. Um, but, you know, having this bi-coastal office set up from the beginning has helped us to reason about, like, okay, what do we need to centralize? What can be distributed um, so it's been it's been good for us that we've had to solve a lot of those problems already before we enter our first new market outside of our original markets. Um, and and you're right that the technology is a big piece of that. I mean, having come from Yammer myself, uh, I mean that was a company oriented around uh, breaking down organizational barriers for fluid communication. Um, so we you know we have a nucleus of a team uh, that that is very interested in that sort of seamless communication across boundaries, whether they're organizational or geographic. Um, so that's one piece. The other piece is, is yeah, absolutely. If you think of uh, the, the big insurance payers that exist in this space, a lot of them grew up before these modern software stacks that we kind of take for granted and the ability to iterate very quickly on software. So as they scaled up their business, they had to add a ton of staff. Uh, where we get to say, okay, well, what's automatable, what's repeatable, what's something that we can just invest in a little bit of technology here so we can double or triple our membership without having to add a ton of staff in this area, and then just add staff in uh, some new areas that provide uh, benefit for our members. So rather than having to scale up a bunch of people doing very manual claims processing or or collecting medical charts and, and some of the tedious work that normally exists in healthcare. As we automate that stuff, 
we can use that money it frees up in salary to hire more social workers and more nurse practitioners that actually can then spend their time influencing the health outcomes of our members and, and decreasing the amount of spend we have on, on medical losses. What is the future of your fundraising strategy? Are you guys going to be looking for more equity capital at some point, more debt capital at some point? We'll almost certainly need to raise again. Uh, we're still considering all the different options that are that are out there. I don't think we've uh, totally decided what the right approach is. And it's going to depend on what the markets look like when, when the time's right for us to raise. And what makes a great investor? Yeah, we're looking for people who can add value to the business. So this is something I think uh, I, I could not possibly be happier about uh, the two firms that we have on board right now. So first round capital. Uh, was involved in our first round. So, so Josh Koppelman's on our board. Uh, he's been really insightful, really great to work with. Uh, and then Sequoia just came on most recently. So we've got Mike Dixon from from uh, Sequoia. And and just the, the value add that each of those firms has had has been so good for us. We're, we're looking for partners who uh, can provide a lot more than money uh, and, and, and help, help us to really grow and, and build the business. Thinking about the insurance space very broadly, there's a bit of a meme that insurance is the next fintech, that fintech was a bit of a backwater for startups 10 years ago, and now there are dozens and dozens of companies in every particular vertical of financial services. Do you see that happening in insurance, or do you think there's something about insurance that makes it particularly tough for startups to penetrate or for funders to get their arms around I mean, it's definitely difficult. There's there's a lot of hurdles you have to go through to, to, to be successful in the health industry. And I think that's why, well, I, I'm saying health in general. There's, there's like a question of insurance and then there's health insurance and then there's health. Um, I think you're seeing activity in, in each of those spaces um, and, and they all overlap. And I think Clover kind of sits in each of those three spaces. Um, I don't know what the trend is going to be, but I think what you see is um, a lot of incumbents that haven't taken new approaches in, in quite a long time. And it, it just seems intuitive to me that there's a lot of opportunity there for, for bringing uh, a sort of reintegration of the value chain and, and, and disrupting that industry and bringing modern tools and approaches and shortening feedback cycles and, and kind of breaking out of some of the prevailing status quo mentality that exists and, and finding new opportunity that, that nobody knew before. It, it's hard for me to say, like, I, I'm not much of a prognosticator. I, I, don't know, I don't know what the industry as a whole is going to do, but I, I think there's a ton of opportunity there. We're also starting to see some real weakness in the funding environment. Uh, we see it at the top end with a bunch of investments. The, the, the most notable was the Fidelity investments where Fidelity started to mark down a lot of their unicorn investments. But we're also, as an early stage investor, I think we're also seeing a bit of hesitancy from VCs and a little bit of skittishness about the next six, nine, 18 months of the funding world. What do you think this is temporary? Are you feeling this? Do you see this? What are your thoughts on that in general? It's definitely, uh, it, it definitely comes up. There are a lot of conversations about what will the markets do? Are they starting to turn? Have they already turned? Um, I think it's influencing how, uh, VCs think about valuation, obviously. Um, other than that, I mean, the, you're talking about funds that still have capital to deploy. So they're, they're going to look to find a place to put it. I think if, if you have a business that 
uh, has like real business fundamentals, like you're bringing in real revenue and you can show uh, that the, the math of the business works, uh, that those businesses will still continue to get funded. I think it'll get a little bit harder for the, uh, there was that piece that talked about uh, all these companies that are selling a dollar for 70 cents, those kinds of businesses. I think that may be challenging if they can't prove that they can actually fix the unit economics. Um, but I, 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 Honestly, like I'm the maybe the worst person to ask about that stuff. I'm I'm by no means an expert. So let's talk about the user experience. Normally, when I think large health insurance, I don't think amazing UI or UX. How important is that in your business, and how have you guys approached it? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, the, the user interface for, for health insurance isn't just like the, the, the health plan's website, right? You can imagine uh, you go to your, your provider's office. They, they're billing claims to the insurance company. There are things you receive in the mail. There's the sign-up process. There's what happens when you call customer service. Uh, we really think of, and it's been an interesting challenge for us, but... Um, we've had to hire a bunch of product managers and tell them that the product is health insurance. It's not a piece of software. And there are software components to health insurance that they also have to reason about. But we're thinking that member experience end to end. Every single touch point that a member has with uh, our team, whether it's customer service or, or whether it's, uh, you know, they're filing a grievance about a, a provider that, that they've had a bad experience with or anything, we want to make sure that they have uh, an experience that that builds trust in, in us as their health plan, uh, solves any issues they have with anybody in the system, and is, is easy and is not them waiting on hold forever or uh, getting unclear answers or having to be transferred between people. And one of our big levers for doing that is the software that we provide our own staff. So, for example, when somebody calls in uh, to the customer service team about an explanation of benefits they received in the mail, we can also uh, provide through the software tools that that customer service team uses, uh, we can provide them insights about, hey, did you realize you're missing uh, this particular uh, treatment or this test or this follow-up visit with this provider? And I'm happy to schedule that for you today. And that's a matter of bringing all of our data insights together. It's actually been really interesting because the uh, one of the first things we did was to take uh, our customer service team and insource them. So, so generally, a health plan of our size uh, would still be using outsourced customer service. But the member experience is so important to us that we said that's one of the first things we have to do. We need to make this our own staff that we can train, uh, that we can give tools to. Uh, and it's, it's really starting to pay off. We, we actually had a funny anecdote this uh, open enrollment season when uh, somebody was calling in about an older relative. She was trying to sign up for the health plan. And she was so impressed with the customer service experience that she got when she called in that uh, she ended up submitting a job application and got hired by Clover. Oh, uh, so she's part of our staff now, yeah. Given that you guys get a certain amount of money, a, cap- a capitated amount per member per month from the government, and that amount is based on the health of the patient, how much of the improvement in health that you see actually a better assessment of the patient's underlying health where you find out that actually they're sicker than the state had originally thought. So you are able to show that this patient requires actually a higher risk score and the government should give you more money per month 
than they were before. Effectively, how much of this is a risk arbitrage, risk rating arbitrage versus actually driving real results? Yeah, this is, this is it, it's an interesting question because I think there's been a lot of scrutiny on Medicare Advantage health plans in general about this risk scoring game that a lot of the companies do play. Uh, we don't want to be playing that game. So the way we think about this is let's build the operations and processes that are best for our members. And out of that, that means uh, that we are going to collect and document all of the appropriate diagnoses. So we'll be getting the appropriate risk score from the government for our population. Um, but it's really key to us that we're capturing those diagnoses and then actually doing something with them. We don't want to just document this so our revenue goes up. We want to document this so we can put somebody on the appropriate protocols for controlling that chronic disease. So, for example, if we can identify a way to get early congestive heart failure diagnoses, we want to use that to put somebody on the CHF protocols that keep that disease from progressing, which ultimately saves the whole system money. Risk scoring is, is an important part of this industry because it eliminates the moral hazard that health plans would otherwise have of only signing up the healthiest people. Um, so it is important that risk scoring be part of the way Medicare Advantage works. But I think what, what we're pushing for and what we're hoping is that there's more pressure on the industry, not just to document risk, but to actually manage risk better. And that's what we're orienting this whole business around. Thanks for talking with us today, Chris. This was a, a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. 